Today on The Idea Fountain, we're talking about optimism. It's the first episode with an audience we've ever recorded outside of my house. Let's take it to the bungalow in Santa Monica, and this episode's going to be a little bit different. I-D-E-A-F-O-U-N-E-A-I-N This is The Idea Fountain. Life-changing conversations. Welcome to the bungalow. My name's Brent Bolthouse. I'm one of the creators of the bungalow. And thank you for coming to our final speaker series of this series, which has been fantastic. It's been really community-driven. We've seen a lot of support. Um, And so, as we've been announcing every week we've been doing this, We've decided to continue doing a speaker series. We're going to do it every other month, so it's sort of like a month on, month off, find new topics, find interesting things to bring the community together up. Because obviously when we built the bungalow, it was really, you know, the core of our whole idea was to build a place for community, right? Where the community in west, the west side of Los Angeles could come together and, and call their home. Um, and I think we've been pretty good at that so far. Um, so, um, and I'm so excited for our first fireside chat, because we've had panels the last three weeks. Um, and you can only get so deep with the panel. So, um, and I called my dear friend Julie, and I said, I know you do these amazing little intimate gatherings at your house, because I used to do that at my house some years ago with the spiritual teacher, and it was always so rewarding to bring people you love into a space and talk about interesting things, and then leave that space and continue that conversation afterwards. Um, and so she so gracefully said, yes, without like, she was the first person that said yes to the speaker series. We're so grateful. Um, she brought along her dear friend, Dr. Chopra. <laughs> so bad with names, I'm so nervous because I hate speaking sometimes. Um, but I think we're gonna have a very interesting conversation about life, health, whatever. You're gonna lead us into this beautiful conversation. Um, and thank you guys all for supporting and being here. Um, and I'll let you guys take it. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Brent. I mean, it is really crazy. Before, people were really doing podcasts or, uh, I think, non-traditional entertainment opportunities, right? Getting together. Brent was doing hosting at his house every Saturday, and it's cool to see what's happened with the bungalow and that feeling of a living room and being here, um, that uh, it's really awesome. So my name's Julie Pilot, and I have an interview series called The Idea Fountain, and it started because I'm really lucky. I have a lot of really amazing people in my life, and um, some of which I wanted to interview. And it's funny, if you go to lunch with somebody, a lot of times you're catching up and you don't really get into the hard questions. And when you interview someone and you have like a real conversation, I didn't want to do it and then just make a blog, right? Because I felt like it'd be a lot of work and it'd just get lost. And so we started doing these uh, fireside chats at my house. And what the magic was, was getting people together. Because you have so many people you love that how often are we just texting or paying attention to what they're doing on Instagram? And so having the conversations was really special. And then having people get together was really special. And then releasing it as a podcast opened me up to a whole new community that I would have never thought that you know, we'd get to experience. And now, to be doing this the first time out in public in Santa Monica is really fun. Um, One of the things I usually do when I open up the idea fountain is usually at my house, I have everybody go around and say their name and bring people into the room. Um, That would be a lot with this room. (laughs) So I'm gonna do something funny. Uh, On the count of three, I'm gonna want everybody just to yell out their full name, okay? And because I really want you guys all in on the podcast. So, you know, it's up to you if it's a whisper or a scream, but I really want to continue the tradition of bringing people into the room. So are you ready? The bungalow in Santa Monica. One, two, three, who's here? (laughs) 
That was awesome. I love it. And, you know, I have to say one more thing that's crazy is to have so many people here. The last time I did an interview, I did it in a parking lot in my car because it was an emergency situation. The last episode of the Idea Fountain, um, we were talking to one of my favorite kids from South Central that was on the verge of getting deported. And there's not enough conversations about what's happening with Dreamers or DACA. And uh, we had an important conversation. And um, the resources poured out from all over. So if you were a part of that, thank you. We got a lot of good leads. We ended up taking the episode down because there's some legal things that are in the works. But um, the outpouring of support for Kathy was really magical. Um, on that note, uh, I would like to officially introduce today's Idea Fountain guest, Dr. Deepika Chopra. Thank you. You are an optimism doctor, which like travels from focusing on both spirituality and science. And I, I want to tell people, because it's a funny story, when we met, the first thing I think I asked you was, is it hard to do what you do with your name? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and believe it or not, you were actually the first person that asked me that question and didn't just assume. Or like, the way in which you asked me, I was like, she's good. Well, I mean, I just thought it was so interesting, right? Because like, I know you're going to have a book, if not 10 books. And you think about going to the self-help section, and that can be complicated. Yes. But you actually... People could confuse that a little bit over there. ...grew up with knowing the... Other. Other, more, you know, maybe one people are more familiar with, Deepak Chopra. Well, the funny thing is my father's name is Deepak Chopra, as I told you. So that makes things a little more tricky. Um, and the reason that we even know them as a family, the other uh, Deepak Chopra, is because they both uh, lived since like around the 80s. My father lived here before that, but in Southern California, and their mail would get messed up. And then one time, they were both couples, so him and his wife, Rita, and my father and his wife, my mother, um, were going to India, and the airline thought they messed up because they were all going on the same flight, and they kicked the other ones off the flight. So they met at the airport and became friends. And so, yeah, there's only like, there's two Deepak Chopras that live in Southern California. And it just so happens that I have the feminine version of his name. And um, I love that you asked me though, you didn't just say like, do you get that a lot? Cause that's really the question that I get all the time. But you said, does it hurt? Yeah. Like, is it a, and honestly it kind of does. And like you were the first person that asked me, it doesn't help. It actually doesn't help um, because I feel like the assumption is sort of like I'm his daughter, that one's daughter. Um, and when they find out I'm not, it's like, oh, bye. But, you know, it's so interesting because you're the optimism doctor, right? Yeah. And I wonder on the flip side how many times people have read an email quick, mm -hmm. right? Like we uh, originally met at a brunch at the Soho house mm -hmm. and they read it quick like, oh, Deepak Chopra, what's right. going on there? And then they get into the fine print and they're like, oh, different than I thought, but I'm into that. Yeah. So, so that's, that's my optimistic yeah. point of view. Thank you. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that, that actually does happen as well. Um, it does. That's true. And there's so or much synergy. Or they walk in and they're like, you are not an older gentleman. <laughs> I'm not, obviously. But will you... I you don't think so. Will you um, explain how you became an optimism doctor? Yes. And what exactly that means? Yes, I would love to. First of all, I'm so happy to be here, and I was just thinking about it, and I was like, I've never been to the bungalow. Bless you. I love sneezing, actually. It's like a really happy thing, so bless you. Um, I have not been to the bungalow since, A, I was single, and B, never this early. And I love being here for this type of thing. It's amazing. Like, I'm seeing it in a whole different light, and it's so intimate and actually such an amazing gathering space. So I'm happy to be here. Yeah, um, energy feels good. Yeah, it does. We brought in some good, you got some good people in here tonight. Um, yeah, I uh, am an optimism doctor, and I get that question a lot. Like, what is that? And it's a valid question because I made up that title myself. Um, which is basically out there to say, if you're doing something and it doesn't exist, 
you should make it up because it does exist. Um, so I got into this very non-linearly. Um, I went to, after undergrad, I actually, my first job out the gate was in investment banking. Very different. Um, I loved certain aspects of it, but I also did not like a lot of aspects of it. And um, I lasted about a year, uh, just shy of a year. Um, I think it was like 11 months. And I quit my job on a Monday and I flew to Japan on a Wednesday, which you just got back from Japan. And I went on a sort of cliche, uh, soul-searching trip, and I really did find myself there. Um, there's a few things I learned in Japan. Number one, I knew I really wanted to work with people more personally, and that was something that was really lacking in my job. So like raising capital for companies was interesting, but the parts I was interested in were more the psychology of the deal making, and I was less interested in just sort of like raising capital. And um, I knew I wanted to help people, but like on a very personal level. And um, the other thing I learned was I really, like hugging is really important to me. I was in Japan for almost two months, and after a week there, I was journaling a lot, and I remember writing, like, why am I feeling so... I got amazing gifts from Japan um, emotionally, but one of the things that, like, a lot of people don't touch. Yeah. And it was so strange to me that after a week, I was like, what is going on? And I, like, was writing, and I was like, oh, it's because I haven't been hugged in a week. And it was just so, like, I took that for granted. But anyway, that's a side point. Um, so I came back to... LA and I ended up deciding, okay, I really like the business, but I like health. And so I went into the public health world and um, I lasted there again, a little bit shorter. <laughs> uh, my parents love this. They always think I just like pick up things and then I, I'm like, yeah, but I wasn't passionate about them. And this is something that stuck and took a lot of years of school. Um, so that sort of surprised them, but it didn't surprise me. Um, I uh, was in the public health sector for about like nine months, I think. And then I had an amazing, I like to call him sort of like my sensei, an amazing boss. And we were out, it was a European company. And uh, at first I thought it was like in London and I thought that was, sure, I'd move to London, but it was actually in this little town called Chesham, which was not in London. And um, when I was up there, we had a management meeting in Calais, France, and they brought in an organizational psychologist. And this amazing boss of mine, instead of sort of like looking at it about his team, he like really looked at an individual. And he was like, you know what, you really lit up this weekend with the organizational psychologist. And you know, a lot of what I was doing with him was M&A and again on the deal making side. And he said, you really love the people part of this. And have you ever thought about psychology? And I'm the person that, you know, after watching the Titanic, uh, I didn't go to school for a week because it was just so sad to me that like two people couldn't be together. I cried in bed for like a week. I know that's like really, it's not an exaggeration. Um, it's just, I was like, yeah, I love all of that. But like in my mind, a psychologist or someone in that field like had to be quote unquote like stronger. And I just didn't like see myself as that. But he opened up this like whole Pandora's box for me. Uh, I ended up quitting my job and uh, flying back to LA. And I knocked on every single door at uh, UCLA NPI, Neuropsychiatric Institute. Literally every single door, just randomly, I parked my car at Medical Plaza, went up and knocked at every door and said, can I please just volunteer for you? I think there's something here I like, but before I like apply to grad school and do everything I need to do to get into grad school, I need to know if this is what I want to do. And I ended up, uh, two people said yes to me, and I ended up doing a uh, volunteership, uh, clinical one with OCD patients, and then a research one um, with schizophrenic patients. And I totally fell in love with the clinical part mostly, but I fell in love and I then applied to grad school, did my master's, completed my doctorate. And then again, in grad school, something about the traditional, I learned a lot from traditional psychology, um, there was so many positives in it, but there was a lot that didn't really like hit home for me. And this idea of giving people a space, and especially when I started my clinical hours, um, which was a lot, uh, but I, there was this like this idea of giving a space to just talk about what wasn't going well week after week. That just that paired with all the research I was doing and things I was reading about the brain, and it just didn't make sense to me. 
And so I got really interested in this idea of positive psychology, which is now a lot bigger than it was, and then more specifically into this idea of optimism. Um, I started to learn that the brain is an anticipatory organ. And everything about our brain and how it functions is like future-based. So like when we see something, our brain actually is, is telling us what it is before our visual cortex actually sees it. So our brain works in future. And I wasn't understanding why so much of therapy was based in the past. And it just wasn't making sense to me. So I started researching further about this idea of not just anticipation and future, but how how can we help people have more positive anticipation about the future? And that could be like a minute from now, or a month from now, or five years from now. And through all my research, and most of the research, believe it or not, that was done at all, if at all, in this sort of like small part was in sports psychology. So I read everything about golf <laughs> and golf psychology because all the money for any of the research there got thrown to that. And it makes sense. Golf is a really, it's a mental game. Um, and it's very future oriented. So I totally became obsessed. Like I was just like, this is my thing. Um, I also grew up with very optimistic parents um, and everything was, f and maybe it's also my culture being Indian, everything was about the future, sort of like planning for the future. Um, and so it just made sense to me. And I, ha I did a double postdoc fellowship at both UCLA and Cedars and I had two of the most amazing supervisors, one at each place who just allowed me to use sort of like these things I was inventing with their patient population. And it just was, it blew up and it was amazing. And through that, I got super into the idea of visualization and using um, sensory-based visual imagery to increase people's optimism. And again, like I was at UCLA for three years. I worked as a psycho-oncologist and I worked with cancer patients. And if you can do this type of work with cancer patients about anticipating, anticipating a positive future, I mean, that's something. You know, you just, I had my next question ready to go, and I want to say, um, comment on that cancer thing. I think one of the best things I've ever done in my life, and it wasn't super intentional going into it, was I had a friend who had cancer, who I love very much, shout out to BT, um, and when he was going through it, he was keeping it very private and not wanting to talk about it and keeping it secret, and I'd known other people that beat cancer who really were able to do that because they had so much support from people. I mean, it really helped them a lot. And so one of the things I always imagined would be hard for BT is if a lot of people knew he had cancer, every single time they saw him, to go, oh, how are you doing? And him to have to deliver negative messages over and over and over and over again. And so we talked him into opening up and we started a blog for him so he could um, make all the updates and have it sent to everyone and people could also send him good energy. But the website we secured was btbeatsit.com. <laughs> so every time he went to check the blog or post something, he had to type that. And that. guess what? He's been cancer free for like six, seven years now. That's amazing. Yeah. But I mean, it just, it really parallels with what you're saying with Absolutely. the psychology. I think it's so fascinating that you went and you did graduate work on this. And you know, you've really dug in on the science. Um, I also think it's interesting. I've always considered myself an optimist. But when we first started talking, I realized pretty quickly I had the wrong definition of an optimist. I mean, how many people here think of you're either a pessimist or an optimist. It's like either or, right? Glasses half full or half empty. But you were saying being an optimist isn't about running around with rose-colored glasses on and if it's pouring down rain, saying it's beautiful and skipping through the streets. That's not being an optimist. That's not being human. <laughs> um, what's the like basic 101 definition of optimism or being an optimist? Yeah, so we often have this idea or definition, especially right now, and, and a lot of it feeds in through like things like Instagram and, and, and all of that, but that a true optimist or to achieve happiness, you have to be positive all the time. 
And that's just setting ourselves up for failure because every single person in this room and every single person in the world is a human. And humans experience the full range of emotions. And that's what makes us human. And so I think it's so important. I, I definitely don't do any optimism work without first defining what an optimist is or an optimistic person. First to say that we all have aspects of optimism and pessimism. Um, second to say that like, evolutionarily, evolutionary wise, we are sort of programmed to be more pessimistic. And this is because a long, long way back when we were running away from saber-toothed tigers, our ancestors, the ones that got away, they imagined the worst case scenarios and then they lived and then they produced and so on. We just have this idea of imagining the worst case scenario and it's sort of programmed in us. And of course, Today, in today's day and age, we still have predators. They don't uh, necessarily look like saber-toothed tigers anymore. They look different, which I won't describe what they look like right now. <laughs> but um, we know that being pessimistic or imagining the worst case scenario isn't really what helps us anymore survive or thrive. Um, and then lastly, uh, the true definition of someone that is optimistic or an optimist is someone that sees all the setbacks and the roadblocks and the problems, they see them, they're so aware of them, they're mindful of them, but the trick is they see them as temporary and they see them as something that they have the power within themselves to overcome. Whereas someone that's sort of, yes, yeah, go ahead. give it up you for the optimist. And by the way, it's like a muscle. Optimism's like a muscle. So you can actually increase that. There's like up to 33% up to, so it doesn't even have to be that much, is sort of like you're genetically predisposed to be someone that's a little more hewing on the side of optimism or pessimism. So that's a whole lot left to work with. I really resonated with that because I think that's a pattern um, that I experience a lot personally. If somebody hits me with horrible news, I immediately go to, how do we fix it, mm -hmm. right? And that, in a lot of times in my life, has been a strength. And I'm sure a lot of times it can be really annoying, right? <laughs> because friends will come to me, and this is going on, and I immediately want to provide solutions. Is there like a really good balance like as far as being a good listener and not having to fix everything? Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I also think that like it doesn't necessarily mean you have to fix everything um, and especially for someone else. It's just this idea that like yeah this thing is not going my way. I see it. I'm aware of it, it sucks. I'm also not taking that away from any of my clients. Like when they have a belief about something that they really don't like or about themselves, it's there. But like what, like it's not permanent, right? And it's this idea that like it's there right now and even if I don't know how to fix it, I know I can and it's not, per I won't be in this forever and I know I have the power to sort of overcome it and it's this idea that that exists. And like also we all have, like I said, optimistic parts and pessimistic parts. And so people don't realize that. Like for me, I feel like I'm pretty optimistic about many things. But when you throw me something medical, I am like more neurotic than Woody Allen. I'm not even kidding. Like I think everything like health-wise, like I am a different person. That's my Achilles heel. That's my optimism Achilles. It's where my self like work has to be done. Nobody's just one thing. That's one of my favorite things Nobody's to remember. Nobody's just one thing, exactly. And that's cool, like we're multi-dimensional and like I said, like we're, what makes us human is that we do experience this full range of emotions and uh, it's, it's part of, of being alive. It's interesting when you think about how people solve problems or go about day to day, there's so many different personality types, right? You know, there's the optimist, there's the person that is gonna just tell you how it is. Mm -hmm. And even if it's negative, they're going to tell you the truth and they're going to be really blunt. There's people that just go with the flow and think that's the way it is. And then, you know, I also have people that are like fight or flight. Mm -hmm. If things are really hard, it's not, this isn't going to be hard forever. Mm -hmm. It's see ya. Yeah. And you were talking about developing that optimism muscle. Mm -hmm. And I think we... Oh, it, I, I had, it was funny, I had kind of a hard day at work. Like, my hard days are like what 
a lot of people would want to do on like their vacation. So I'm not complaining, but I was having it's okay a, if you are, but I was having a hard day and I was thinking this is just really good fuel for the optimism conversation tonight. Right? So as you strengthen that muscle, what are suggestions of things people can do? Yeah. So a lot of the suggestions, which uh, we've seen in, in the research are, when you look at them, they're really simple and they're really easy, but they're actually really hard to do. And so um, basically, like like a little, maybe like three, let me think of three that um, are sort of like some fun, interesting ones. Um, so everyone knows, like I feel like all of a sudden right now, this idea of gratitude and journaling, these two things are like very in people's minds. It's almost like in my household, anything that goes wrong, my mom says to like drink water. I almost feel like right now, anything that goes wrong or going through anything, people are like, write a gratitude journal. Just like write about what you're grateful for. Um, and that's amazing because there's actually so much science behind the idea of gratitude. But like... Interestingly enough, like how much of you is on your gratitude journal? It's it's interesting. Like whenever I work with clients and we do this, it's like there are all these external things. Yeah, none. Right? I mean, I have a gratitude journal. That. None. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be this happened today. Right. I'm thankful for this, but I never focus on myself. Right. And like what you did to create that, yeah. right? So this idea of one of my favorite things is remember something that you currently have today that you really, really wanted for so long. So you spent a lot of time manifesting it or wishing for it or wanting it. And you have it today, currently. How many of us actually take the time or space to like f give space and focus on that? Right. Probably none of us, right? Like we just, we are, when we achieve something, we just want the next thing. And there's sort of this idea of like, right now, like a very popular trigger word is manifest, right? Like, it's all about manifesting the next thing. But it's interesting because you were talking about positive visualization yeah. and I was connecting that to manifesting. Yeah, so I actually, when I, when I wrote my dissertation about a decade ago now, it was on this idea of evidence-based manifestation. Of course, at that time, most of the people in my grad program were like, that's very hippity-dippity. <laughs> I'm not about that. And I'm not really sure you can do your dissertation project on that. Well, fuck you, I did. <laughs> and now manifestation is like this really good word. Where like, um, and there's nothing wrong with it. So yeah, <laughs> there's nothing wrong. This girl, yes. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a huge part, positive visualization and knowing what you want is a really important aspect of all of this. But the real trick in every bit of my research I've done, the real like secret, no pun intended for the fact that like I know this law of attraction and the secret, but um, is about your expectation. So let me just do an example. How many people in the room right now, right now want to win the lottery? If you were given the chance, I mean, everybody is raising their hand. They all wanna win, right? You all wanna win the lottery. Okay, how many of you guys that raised your hand and said you wanted to win the, the lottery, how many of you guys bought a lottery ticket today? <laughs> Hope I'm not missing anyone, but I don't see anyone raising their hand. Zero, right? Oh, we did get oh, you in the back we have one there. there buying drinks okay. later. Do you, do you uh, buy a lottery ticket every day? Or just happen to today? Where's the group situation? Oh. There's a team. Oh, okay. Does anyone want to answer for the team? Okay. Well, that's so out of every single person that in this room raised their hand that they want to win the lottery, one person or a small group together, one person raised their hand. And that's not surprising to me because you can want and wish and want until the cows come home, but your brain is not going to set forth your executive functioning to do anything to make that want happen if it believes there is no possible way that it's going to happen. So the true key is, yes, important to know what you want, but how much do you believe it's going to happen? And that expectation is the work that I do with people because it's like our brains are these amazing, powerful, efficient, anticipatory organs. And it's actually a good thing. We, don't, we have a lot to do. And we don't set forth like any energy in things that we don't believe 
are going to happen. And so it's this idea, one of my favorite things, it's the self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. We like to just, our brains like to collect evidence for things we already believe. So that could work for you, but it also can really hinder you. And so it's this idea of the, we don't often get what we want, but we most always get what we expect. So, yeah. So it's really about, I like to have people measure, well, how badly do you want this thing, one to 10? And then how much do you expect one to 10 that this is believable and it actually is going to happen for you? And the two often do not correlate. They don't, they don't go together. And so it's bridging together that gap where like real change occurs. Do you think hypnotherapy helps at all in that? Because somebody told me once that your um, subconscious can be conditioned to a belief no matter how many times you tell yourself, I'm gonna run a marathon, your subconscious is so patterned to say like, that's not gonna happen. Right. And that hypnotherapy digs into a layer deeper. And I never knew if that was true or just like, you know, something being talked about in line at Urban Outfitters. <laughs> um, well, to answer the first part of your question, um, so yeah, you're, this is what, exactly why, and it might be kind of something controversial to, stay, to say in the middle of Southern California, particularly Santa Monica, um, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I do not believe in blanket statement affirmations. So we all know what affirmations are. I feel like most of us have gone to a yoga class and at the end of it, there's like a little visualization and oftentimes affirmations or a lot of us know life coaches or um, I don't know, the gamut. Like you can, obviously I call myself an optimism doctor so you can call yourself whatever you want. And so um, there's this idea where I feel like everyone prescribes these affirmations. So let's say someone comes uh, to you and you're a life coach or whatever, and they're like, core, or they come to me, and uh, your core belief is, I don't like myself. And then, like, I've heard a lot of these people, their prescription to this or their antidote to this is just stand in front of a mirror and I want you to say three times, I love myself. I love, put your hand on your heart and say, I love myself, I love myself, I love myself. Three times when you wake up in the morning and three times before you go to bed. And that's supposed to cure everything. Okay, actually, it is so detrimental, especially to the people that really need it. So if you're just sort of this high functioning, doing well and need a boost, sure, a blanket statement affirmation is probably going to help you a little bit. I believe in something a little more personalized and custom, and if you don't believe something to be sincerely true, it's going to work against you because your brain is very powerful. The person that doesn't really like themselves or the person that doesn't feel they deserve love, like these real core beliefs that people have. First of all, if they come to me, I'm, I 100% will say, I'm not gonna take that away from you. Maybe you've been working on that core belief for 35 years, for 42 years, so it's really like, you've done a lot of work there to collect the evidence and you believe that's true. So imagine driving like super fast down the highway and then all of a sudden someone tells you to just like make a turn and go the other direction. You're going to crash. Like we're not in Fast and Furious. We're not Vin Diesel. Like we don't all, we can't handle a car like that. So the truth is I would much prefer someone, well basically if you say that and you don't believe it, your brain automatically, your, your subconscious brain automatically just comes out with like, that's not true, you don't love yourself. Remember when this happened and that happened and like you hate yourself, you don't deserve this. And then you feel shame and guilt and why isn't this working? And you're actually worse off than you were before you told yourself that lie. And so again, like we're based here, our brain likes things that, that we believe to be true. So I would much prefer that same person to come to me and I could ask them, well, can you just tell me one thing that you kind of like about yourself? Just one thing, one thing. And I'm not going to take away from the fact that I know your core belief is you really don't like yourself. We're just going to put that on the side over here. And they might say, well, I really like my sense of humor. Or I like the way I tell a story. Or, I don't know, I'm a very loyal friend. Um, I picked up my friend from the airport yesterday. And we know it takes loyalty to go to LAX. So, <laughs> And then I asked them, okay, let's take that. You like that you're a loyal person. How much do you believe that 1 to 10? 10 being I believe that the most, one being not at all. And if they're like seven, anything seven and above is a good affirmation on my, in my level. So if you believe that, I would much rather you say that in front of the mirror three times 
And then three times at night, because you believe it and it's true, and once that's in your brain, we know that uh, you will start searching for other evidence to prove that to be true. And so if we're on a continuum and like one is that your core belief is you really don't like yourself and here is I love myself, by saying that we're inching, we're turning the car slightly and we're going slowly. And the more we go down that path, like we can go faster, but we haven't just like crashed and burned. And so that is a better thing to me than just like these blanket statement affirmations that are actually like really detrimental to people that really need them. I like that. I mean, I took something away from that and, and just am still, I have a <laughs> gratitude journal that's probably three years deep and I bet you if I went through it, none of it is about me. So that's a, I mean, I'm not on purpose. Like right. I well, could tell of, you, yeah. I could give you some sevens, yeah. but when I'm journaling at night, that's just not what comes to mind. So well, that's like the fascinating. What's really cool is there's been this research done and um, there's tons of research on gratitude, which is amazing right now because it really is a very powerful tool and it really does increase happiness and optimism. But self-gratitude, so that really important sort of like, what did I do to create X, Y, and Z that makes me happy? Um, there's all this research that it actually makes you more productive. So people that are sort of like, I always love this because I feel like I work with a lot of people that are like, unless you tell me this is going to make me more money or give me a better job or like they're just in this productive and I'm like it will so just you have to like you need to put yourself in your self-gratitude journals and also the other tip with that is we spend a lot of time and it's not not um it's not like random it's just how we're kind of programmed we spend a lot of time and energy and attention on things that are not working out and that just is the way our brains work like this isn't really working out um, this is unfinished or I need to self-improve on this. We're so comfortable with the idea of self-improvement, but we're very uncomfortable with talking about like what's going well or making us happy that we already are currently doing. And that's one way to really increase happiness is like instead of like maybe just a gratitude journal to write three things that you're grateful for, A, make it about you and then B, a step further, like make a happy journal. Name three things that made you happy today. They could be anything, small, big, whatever it is, because we do know that the more you program the attention in your brain, bless you, um, to something, we start searching for more evidence for that. And it's kind of like this idea of uh, when I got a car when I was 16 or 17, I got a Chevy Tahoe, and I was like crazy about this car. Like I wanted the pewter color Chevy Tahoe. And I was driving on the road, and all of a sudden, everybody had the same car as me. Everyone had the pewter color Chevy Tahoe. And I was like, did I just get like the most trendy thing ever? Or like, what's going on here? And it's not because, uh, you know, they're just there because I got them. It's because they've always been there. But now my attention is very like programmed and aware to that specific car. And so I'm going to seek it out more. And it's like tuning into a radio station. So our attention is limited. We think we have this unlimited capacity for attention and our brain just takes us down like these paths. But... Our attention is limited, it's our most valuable currency, and we can choose how to spend it, and we should choose how to spend that current currency very mindfully. I love that. Uh, I want to get some more secret ninja advice for you on a scenario. Uh, you know, it's really incredible to look around at the different communities that have come to hang out in here today, and, you know, you can say birds of a feather flock together. But at the same time, we may have a lot of people that are interested in making the world a better place or hanging out and talking about being more optimistic. But from really drastic walks of life, I mean, we have mortgage bankers here. We have music industry people here. We have artists here. Um, and uh, even, you know, people that do things with the United Nations or run global companies. And... Um, you're never necessarily always going to be in a scenario where, especially when you're working or with your, when you're with your family, where everybody is as interested as being as optimistic as you are. When you're in a work situation or family situation and you just find yourself being surrounded by negativity, everybody is really upset. Anxiety is harder than it, or higher than it's been in a really long time. How do you, or how could we wiggle our ways out of that? I mean, you're the optimism doctor, so people are already on your couch. But I mean, if you're in 
the workforce or in an intense family situation, what advice do you have for people? So that kind of uh, makes me think of this idea that we are empathic creatures. So that makes sense. It's sort of like you, you are in the elevator, let's say, at work, and you walked into work having a really good day already. Like you were listening to some really good music, something that pumped you up, you got great coffee, you're in your car, there was no traffic for you. You get in the elevator and all of a sudden you hear someone and they're just like, I am having the worst day. I got into an accident, there's coffee spilled on my shirt, assholes in LA driving, like they're just mad, right? And they're having a bad day. Our initial response to that is to connect to them. So we start thinking like, oh my gosh, like when this happened to me last Tuesday, how can I connect with this person? We're not gonna be like, well, I'm having a great day. I'll be like, how can I fix it? I have an extra shirt in my office. <laughs> Well, that, that's really good too. And so most of us are these empathic creatures where it makes sense. We sort of want to meet someone at their level. We'll stop doing that. You can hear someone, be there for them, but not let them tell your story. So it's this like exercise that's actually really hard to do. It sounds simple, but to like mindfully go into your day and be like, I'm going to keep to whatever my story is and my energy is. And you, even if you're having a bad day, keep to it, whatever. But if you're having a good day and someone else around you is not, and this is like actually something much bigger. It's also we're in the environment in the world right now where there's a lot of really crappy things happening that can just be, that could, dev it devastates us. Um, but it's this idea of um, telling a new story and telling your own story and kind of trying to stick to it and being empathic and being able to hear someone and maybe offer them the shirt, but like not letting it, turn around your story. And what language would you use? I'm sorry that happened to you, or what would your response be in the elevator? Well, I think that like whatever your response is, it's fine. It's more like what is the conversation you're having with yourself? So it's sort of like I'm going to listen to this, and I can feel for this person, and I have empathy for this person, and I am going to engage with them and be there for them if that's what you choose to do. But I'm not going to allow it to change what I came into the elevator with, yeah. if that makes sense. That makes a ton of sense. Um, I'm going to want to, in a few minutes, open it up to questions, because I want other people to be able to talk to you as well. Um, so if you have a question, get ready to come on up. Um, but uh, on that same note, as far as being influenced by different people's energy, um, I want to talk to you about social media. Um, I see, I feel like people want attention and sometimes it's good attention. And, you know, if they're not getting good attention, they might want bad attention too. I mean, bad attention still gives you attention. Right. So it could be posting the photo of your flat tire you know, or things like that. How, um, I'd like you to talk about how, what kind of advice you have on social media. And if somebody's listening and they really haven't thought about what they're putting out into the world, what they should know. I mean, the whole social media topic, um, it's, like a love and hate relationship I think we all have with this idea of social media. And it's true, like most of it is when you sort of like dilute it all down, it is about validation and about attention. I mean, it just is. And, and it's a platform, it's there, it's so pervasive, like we can't really get away from it. And there are amazing positive attributes to social media and ways it can be used. Um, I always find that, you know, a lot of stuff came up for me when, when I was pregnant. And um, even though I'm in this space and I study optimism and happiness, I had a really, really, really difficult pregnancy. I mean, I threw up about 30 times a day from the day I found out I was pregnant until he came out of me. And I had this thing called hyperemesis gravidarum and less than 2% of pregnant women get it. And it's like very severe morning sickness. Why they say morning, I'm not sure. It was all day long. Um, but I had this like really weird experience where I felt like people, especially in my industry or in the wellness world that were also pregnant at the same time, or everyone just seemed to be posting these pictures of like their glowing pregnant selves, right? They were just these goddesses, like everything's amazing, like growing a human in my belly is the easiest thing possible. I feel better than I even felt when I was not pregnant. And I just kind of like sneezed and the baby came out. And now I'm back to normal. I mean, I do have some friends where that actually did happen, I think, or I'm not sure, but like it seemed like it. But 
that's not the case for the majority of people. And the reason I'm saying this is one aspect of social media that I found that I love that came from that, and maybe it was like an optimistic shift, but I had a tough time with that. Like, I did not have postpartum depression because I was so happy to have him out of me so that I stopped throwing up. But I think I had like pregnancy depression because I, well, I, that, I shouldn't use that term because um, well, I mean, you were sick. Slightly. I was chronically sick for almost 10 months and I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't do anything. I had an IV and it was just like, I still gained 32 pounds though because I ate a lot of Egg McMuffins from McDonald's. They were the only thing that could go down. But having said that, like, I'm in the health space. I was gluten-free, um, you know, anti-inflammatory diet for nine years. And now here I am pregnant, supposed to be like, or I thought this person, just like all the other people in my like small wellness group that were like glowing, right? Barefoot with this beautiful like bohemian dress being like, I'm pregnant eating like a celery stick <laughs> or a juice, a green juice. And all I could have were egg McMuffins only from McDonald's, like not like homemade organic kinds. And... So I didn't really feel comfortable sharing my pregnancy because I felt like a fraud. And I didn't share it. And I was kind of wondering, I'm like, why am I keeping this so secret? I'm already six months pregnant. Um, and my, my cousin got married right here, actually. Um, and these pictures came out. You know, obviously, I was wearing this, like, really beautiful Indian outfit that one of my best friends who's here made for me, who's a designer. And... I felt like when I saw the picture and people were like, oh my God, you're pregnant. You look so beautiful. Like her outfits make anyone look beautiful, by the way. And so I was like, I felt really badly because I was like, that is not how I'm feeling. I literally like took that picture and smiled and then my head was in a trash can, you know, like on the corner of like the dance floor. And so I finally like opened up and I was really transparent and I wrote exactly what I was going through. And I've never ever in all my time on social media got more of a strong response. Like it, in my world, for me, in my small world, like it went viral to me. And I did not know how many people felt the same way I did, or at least just like they all like had this like breath of fresh air that like, oh, someone else is having an experience that's not pretty in pregnancy. And someone else is feeling guilt about not being grateful that they're pregnant and they're saying it and they're not connecting because they're feeling ill and it ruined their whole life. Although obviously it it was all worth it or not obviously for some people it's not but for me it was all worth it but at the time and it just made me think like here's a positive it came from a negative on social media but here's a positive and I sort of vowed from there like I'm gonna my for me I'm gonna be really transparent if I'm feeling happy and amazing I'm sharing it but I'm also sharing like how hard it is to be all the kinds of roles that I am in my life you know, whatever it is, just being a human, you know, just having estrogen is hard. Sorry for the men out there. It's hard to be you too. But um, being a woman is hard, you know, and all the roles that, that we have and the hats we wear. And I'm kind of just not going to prescribe to that sort of like, here's my curated feed. I mean, it still is curated because everyone's is curated. But I'm just going to be transparent and see how that goes. And it's sort of just, it's been the way it was. And it's a positive that came from it. Um, but yeah, like you can't, you, nothing on social media is really real. You have to like, yeah, some things are, but on the whole, like someone's feed is not someone's life. And I think that, I swear, I think people should have a disclaimer. Like on their like, either post transparently or be like, this is not a true accurate description of my life. And if you're going to be out there and have a public profile and you have any sort of following, I think it's important. It should come with like a PSA. Right. No, I think that's good. And I love, um, I believe that there is a lot of power in being vulnerable and being authentic. And I think people are really craving that. Yeah. And so, you know, that can be one of the positive things about social people yeah. not feeling like they're alone. Yeah. So I actually fully appreciate that you can be an optimism doctor and unhappy on social media. That's great. I'm an optimism doctor, but I'm a human first, and I'm trying to increase my optimism just like everybody else, and I can't sit up there and be like, I'm a preacher, and I know everything, and I'm living this life of, like, I'm the happiest person on the planet. And the preachers aren't either. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The preachers aren't either. So, I mean, I'm just right there with everyone else. I'm on the same journey, and I think that that's important from sitting in the place I am or with some of the knowledge that I have, you know, oftentimes I feel like prescribing myself some of the things are actually the hardest. 
And so maybe my clients are way better off than I am even. Yeah. Um, so we're going to get into some questions. Um, if anybody has any questions, maybe you can come up here. But um, before we go to the room, um, I'm curious. One of the things we've been talking a lot about with the Idea Fountain this season is instincts and intuition. Um, how do you use your instincts and intuition as an optimism doctor? Interesting. Um, so I feel like this idea of instincts and intuition Unfortunately, because of kind of a lot of things we were talking about, mainly um, technology, which again has its positives and negatives, but the idea of having so many choices is killing our instincts, our in instinctual ability or the ability to hear our, our voice inside. And it's really interesting, but um, you know, like 80% of the gray matter of our brain is devoted to this non-conscious thinking. And 20% is on like the conscious part. So, really? yeah. So when you make a decision and you sort of are going through this logical process, it makes sense, fine. But like, how come we're not making decisions more from like the part that's the greater part? And so it's like something small. Like I was coming here today and I just like, I'm not that great at, I'm an optimism doctor and I think about the future, but I'm also um, a walking dichotomy and I'm not really great at planning. I'm not someone that's like, oh, I know I'm speaking at uh, the bungalow uh, with the idea fountain, I'm gonna wear this. I'm just someone that's like, what do I feel like wearing like five minutes before, which is probably why I'm late to most places, but I was on time. And I like looked in the closet and I just picked this out. So I'm this- It's a good look, you look great. Camouflage yeah. jacket, yeah. right? Um, and I just like instinctually was like, I want to wear this. And then my brain, like my logical side came out and said, well, like maybe that would be weird. Well, that's kind of unprofessional. Like why are you wearing like a camouflage jacket? I don't know. Just something came up in me. But instead of listening to that, I was just like, well, something about that felt good. And so it's this idea of practicing again this muscle of like listening to that voice inside that like we have it because the largest part of our brain is actually like devoted to that. And maybe there was a reason, like maybe this makes me feel good. And maybe if I feel good, I'm gonna be a little more confident. And if I'm confident, maybe I'll reach inside of me and have better answers. Like, whereas, you know, if I listen to my logical self, like maybe I would have worn like a white blazer or like a black one and I might've felt like, I don't know, it wouldn't have brought out like something else in me. It's true, it goes back to that old um, statistic, right? That you should always go with your first instinct on test questions, oh, right? Yeah. And yes. then we yes. end up talking ourselves out of it. So uh, I think that's good. Well, um, yeah, exactly. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's hard right now because a lot of us have been trained or trained ourselves to quiet that. And there's some really simple ways to sort of like bring that about and again, it's the J word, journaling. Um, if you give yourself just space to free journal, because most of the time um, we can quiet that inner judge by just knowing that we can say or think or say anything on a piece of paper that only we're looking at. And uh, we're very judgmental, and that's actually a good thing. Labeling things actually helps us sort of sift through all the stimulation and stimuli we have in our world. But we need time and space to be in solitude and to sort of like go inward and listen to this voice. It's a muscle. The more we do it, the more we pay attention to it, the more we're able to find that. Yeah, I love that. I think it's different for everybody too. Some people yeah. it's journaling, some people it's running, yeah. some people listening to music, flower arranging. Oh, Taking, I, I can't listen to music you because can. I'll be so yeah. that's part of my job, it's right? Your, you'll so judge. I'll be over analyzing where it's at on the charts. Like taking myself <laughs> out to lunch sometimes alone. Like I'm a I'm a pretty I feel like I Everyone has, again, just like optimists and pessimists, every, we always have these labels of like, are you an introvert or an extrovert? Like right. all of us have introvert parts of us and extrovert parts of us. And for me, I feel like my recharge comes from like the introvert part of me. And like for every social gathering I'm part of, I need like an introvert like antidote to it to like just recharge and have my, my place to kind of go within. Yeah, you have to protect your energy in those situations. Hell yeah, girl, you gotta protect that energy. Um, speaking of all the energy in this room, as far as questions at the first ever public facing idea fountain, not at my house, uh, does anybody have any questions? Prophet always has a question. If you had to recommend a book or to a client or to a friend, what book do you give away or do you recommend the most? That's a really good question. Um, so I really love, 
I love like simple books on mindfulness. Um, and I'm going to butcher his name and I should know exactly how to say it, but there's a lovely book called Touching Peace by Thich Nhat Hanh. I can spell it. Thich Nhat Hanh, yeah. Um, because it's a really simple way to practice mindfulness and there's like these mindfulness exercises that are really amazing and that, that's a great way to sort of build the muscle of everything we're talking about. And I love, I absolutely love it. It's thin and short and beautiful. All right, we got another one here. Hi, I'm Thomas. First off, that was really Hi. amazing. Thank you for the insights. Hi. Um, Thank you my question here. to you is, where do you go for inspiration for yourself? So good. Um, so because music's not part of my um, job, um, and it's a passion of mine, music is something that's so inspirational to me and inspiring to me and nature for me. Just recently, I went on this like women's retreat, um, which was really out of my comfort zone. It was 18 of us in New Mexico and Taos, and it was sort of like a shamanic women's retreat, but there was no ayahuasca or anything like that. Um, it was... And it was in the middle of nature and there was a lot of, it also like brought in a lot of like Hindu practice, which is my background, but I, I haven't been very connected to it in my like recent years. And it really just brought me, brought me back to like how inspired I feel just being outside and being grounded and being in nature and how just powerful and alive nature is and like the mother earth. and. Um, I was so inspired, and so for me now, aside just from music, music's huge for me, um, just walking outside every single day with like a mindful idea that like I'm going to get inspiration, like I started doing that, and it's actually really changing the course of my whole day. Hi, I'm David, and uh, I, have, um, I have a question about people who have uh, lack of self-awareness and, and one extreme in mental illness uh, with uh, what they call anosognosia, schizophrenia, bipolar, and others are just like everybody wanders around and not aware of themselves uh, on a daily basis and bad habits or, or addictions of whatever type. Um, so how do you approach people that have can't seem to make the first step and, and recognize even that there's a problem, but it's they're self-defeating or self-sabotaging or, or worse. Right. What, what kind of things, how do you approach with your... So, you know, I used to work at Cedars-Sinai and we had a really, really large population there when I was doing my fellowship um, of borderline personality disordered patients. And I don't know if you've that pop... I hate using these disorders kind of... Um, some, some people believe that they really exist and some people believe that, I mean, they really exist, but like the idea of a disorder or labeling and some people believe they're just there for insurance purposes, <laughs> like to label someone or classify them to have a diagnosis code. But um, that's a real thing. And one of the hallmarks of something like that is complete lack of self-awareness. And it's really difficult to do some of the work we're talking about when you are in that space or you're so... Um, deeply disconnected and there's really something chemically going on in the brain. Um, I think that there is a real, there is a real space when someone's severe like that for medication and for different types of therapy as well and different types of neuro um, psych. But um, I always think that people can practice the, these ideas, kind of what I was talking about before, of mindfulness. And really just slowing down. And it doesn't have to be, you know, I work with a lot of people and I did in my past life at the hospitals um, with anxiety. And I always thought it was so interesting that people would say this idea of meditation had started to come up a lot, um, even in the like psych world. And now it's obviously really there, which is amazing. But um, it's really hard for someone very anxious to quote unquote traditionally meditate, right? To quiet the mind. And I'm someone that I know I'm more prone to, like, I think a lot and my brain's always on. And so I started coming up with these really, um, they're sort of, in my mind, meditations, but they're really, like, these practices of healthy distractions. So if you can, like we talked about before, um, your brain has a limited capacity for attention. So if you can do an exercise that actually fills up your entire brain's attentional capacity with something other than your worries or thoughts... Um, one of my favorite things ever is this, this, this game. It's sort of like the game we used to play called I Spy. 
And so when someone's really going through, and I used it a lot at the hospital with the patients that were um, a lot lower functioning, emotionally speaking, um, that were really anxious, and it's just going around the room you know, for 30 seconds out loud and saying every single thing that you see without any judgment. So it's kind of like, I see a red shirt. I see a white shirt. I see a photograph. I see, without being like, I see a photograph of someone in their underwear and I wonder what they're doing. Like none of that, no stories. By the way, for those listening, there is a photograph. Which I didn't just make that up. Um, <laughs> you know, you go on and like, it's not because I'm just like trying to make you have a, a, you know, back to memory lane of like I spy, but it's a good enough way to focus all your attention on something so that it's like a reset button for your brain. And sometimes with people, like you can't go straight to meditation. You can't tell someone to focus on your breath and quiet your mind. Like that's not going to work yet. So like for some people, it's like, how can we make like a game or a tool or an exercise for you in which you're completely focused on one thing and your brain is totally taken up all the attention that it can't actually go to the psychosis or it can't go to the anxiety and then proving to them that you did that. So for 30 seconds, you controlled your brain. That was amazing. So like, then we can move on to the next thing. So you have to like prove to them that they really can do something like that with a tangible tool that's easy. Do, do you use any media like music or video games or anything like that? So I think music is, an, is a very interesting tool. I know there's a lot of like apps out there and stuff. Um, I sort of tend to err on the like not so much tech side, um, especially with, with the population that we're talking about. Um, but I, I'm a, I, I love like utilizing all the senses and like the tactile one being part of it as well. And so uh, there are great things, but I sort of tend to first try the non-tech stuff. Yeah, I always wonder with screen time, right? Like how much damage or how much, or how many more challenges are we giving ourselves just by going to more screens? Well, I also feel like we have screens enough, right? Yeah. So if there's like an hour I have with someone, it's kind of like the same thing, like we worry enough. We talk about what we don't like enough. So it was sort of like bringing us back to full circle when I was like, I didn't want to be that person in, in traditional therapy that was just giving someone another hour to like talk about what they don't want anymore. Or like if I can give someone an hour to do something outside or like not screen time, because I know they have enough. If they want to do that, they can. But I'd, if I can give them that once a week, that'd be great. Yeah, I think that's great. Also, for people that are listening and not here, I think you'll appreciate it's an International Women's History Month event. And there's probably about 90% women here. But the guys yes. have come with all the questions so far. Yes. <laughs> so but true. that's about to change. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Janet. Janet. Hi. Hi, Janet. Um, I just had a question about, I think you kind of talked about this with blanket affirmations. Uh -huh. But um, could you talk about kind of the difference between like true optimism and something that's more like escapism or denial? And if someone's able to kind of find happiness in escapism, is that like healthy or is it something that you want to change or fix? So that's a great question. Um, and it's sort of back to that idea of like people having this view of what the term optimism is. And a lot of people I know push back and say like, well, the true pessimists are the people that are like realists. You know, it's like this idea and like the optimists have their head in the clouds and like they don't really know what's up. Um, but it just goes back to like, yeah, like a true optimist doesn't have their heads in the clouds. Um, they aren't just escaping, they're seeing everything for what it is. And they're able to say like, this sucks, this is a problem, I don't like it. It's not what I wanted, but there is a shift. And like we said before, like it doesn't have to happen in that moment. They don't have to say, I know how to fix this. They're just sort of like, I know it's not permanent. And I know I do have the power to. And just being able to say that and to actually like visualize that you do have the power to, your, your uh, executive part of your brain starts kicking in and like actually you'll come up with ways that you can. Did that sort of answer it or was it? Is there something more? Oh, can oh, you said, can the people that are more the escapists, like sort of ignorance is bliss, right? Um, so that's a really good question. I was actually asked this on a different podcast recently. And uh, like for me personally, so this is not coming from like a, a research perspective. For me personally and all the, the work I do, I don't 
I'm not the biggest fan of ignorance is bliss. I think people need to know what's going on, and there's power in that. And so I get this question asked a lot, which I actually really love. At the end of a lot of panels, people are like, and this is sort of related to what you were saying, but how can we be optimistic in this world where like horrible things are happening? Like really bad things are happening, and like how can we be optimistic when I just feel like awful things are happening? And a lot of people will say like, turn off the news. Like there's just bad stuff happening on the news. Just like don't read the news anymore. Don't watch the news. And I actually think something differently. Like I think we should watch the news, and we should know what's going on, even the awful things that are going on. But I think to add to that, there is amazing, amazing things going on in the world that we do not give any light to. Like, I just read the other day that like the tiger population in Nepal like more than doubled. And we thought they were like ex going to be extinct. Or the Dalai Lama just came out with this like amazing curriculum in Delhi to serve 800,000 like students called the happiness curriculum. Like that's so cool. There's amazing happy news happening that we don't really pay any attention to. So I'm, I don't think we should be ignorance is bliss, but I think we should start devoting more of our attention to like good things that are happening as well because they are there. Shout out to the tigers. That's great. I know. Right. Um, thanks so much for hanging out with us. I still can't believe that you don't have a book on the market yet. I know it's going to happen. Um, and I can't wait to read it and buy copies for all my friends. Thank you. Um, but you have a really interesting thing coming out. Well, in about yeah, that's, few weeks. What, that's what I want to talk about. How can people find you if they want more? You kept talking about patience, and I know you're working on some products. Talk about all of that. So, yeah, you can find me at my website, which is www. Do you have to say the www anymore? Is that like really amateur? And that is the end of the episode. <laughs> funny while we were finishing the episode and talking about being real when things aren't always easy uh as we were taping the episode the recorder fell off a table and broke but thank goodness we kept the recording and uh if you want to check out more from Deepika her website is drdeepikashopra.com which is D-R-D-E-E-P-I-K-A-C-H-O-P-R-A.com. And if you want more from The Idea Fountain, check out theideafountain.co. Thanks again to The Bungalow, and I really appreciate you listening and telling a friend about The Idea Fountain. Have a good day. <laughs>